Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that here in Toronto, we are on the traditional territory of many Indigenous nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit River, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Huron-Wendat. This meeting place is still home to many First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people, and we are grateful for the opportunity to live and work on this land. As we explore stories of medical science, we also ask our listeners to learn about and reflect on the long history of science and medicine as tools of oppression against Indigenous people, and the complex perceptions of, and barriers to, healthcare that are still experienced by Indigenous peoples in Canada today. As Canadians, we're usually pretty smug about our healthcare system, but it's definitely not perfect. Some say we need universal pharmacare, and that our medication prices are too high. In fact, Canada has among the highest drug prices in the world. A recent study found that one in five Canadian households could not take a prescribed medication due to cost. In this episode, we explore the issue of drug development and drug pricing in Canada. We explore who is actually doing the research to find new drugs, what it means to bring new medications to the market, and why it's so difficult for everybody to agree on fair drug prices. I'm Seth. And I'm Stephanie. Welcome to episode 92 of Raw Talk Podcast. First, we sat down with Dr. Allison Symington, Strategic Life Sciences Consultant at Life Sciences Ontario, former Executive Director of Biotechnology Education Canada, and former Research Scientist at Sanofi Pasteur. While we've heard bits and pieces of the drug development pipeline during some of our previous episodes, we asked Dr. Symington to give us a big-picture overview of the process. This first step is really understanding what the targets, mechanisms are. Often that's done in academic labs. It's about pure discovery. What is a mechanism of a disease? What's the right target? Those kinds of things. And then that translates. After that, you go through a period where you're going to validate that that's the right target. So is it a genetic target? What, what are you going to use? And usually that also can often be done inside an academic facility. And then you get to a point where you want to manufacture something that you want to test it in clinical trials, also in animals, etc. And so the drug process really is once you've validated it, and often now we use artificial intelligence to do some of this work up front, then you develop potential drug and now you want to test it. And now we have to get into a situation where you might have to go to a contract manufacturer. You might need to spin out your own company, but you certainly need to go to someone with expertise. And there are, in Canada, we don't have a huge number of these contract manufacturers. We have some, depending what the drug type is. So I have to tell you, it's quite different if you're making a synthetic drug versus a biological drug, but overall the process is the same. So then what happens is you'll take that drug and you'll do a range of preclinical studies, which will be both analytical and in animal models. And that shows not just safety and toxicology profiles, it also gives you an idea of dosing, it gives you an idea of their work. I have to say that assumes there is an animal model, so sometimes there is not. And then typically you start into the clinical phase. Drug development is not linear. So, you know, you kind of do some development. Okay, we've got a molecule. It's not bad, but now we have to go back and find a bit of a better one. Okay, we went to phase one. We did the dosing. It was okay. But now actually we, we did phase two. We need to go back to a higher dose. Okay, we have to go back to phase one now to show that higher dose is okay. So there's a lot of this going around. That's why the drug development process takes quite a long time. So all the way from start to finish, how long does the entire process of drug development that's a great question because typically 
a drug can take, it depends what kind of drug, but you know, you're probably talking to a seven to 12 year cycle to get it approved. Many take much, much longer, 20 years. And unbelievably, some of the COVID vaccines took a year. Mm -hmm. Now that's because they got expedited approval. So when I'm talking about drugs that have had gone through the normal one, I'm not talking about drugs that get expedited approval. Those are drugs that are for serious life-threatening diseases of which we have no therapy and we are urgently in need. But even through emergency approval, they need to continue to do clinical trials. And at any time they can be stopped if something happened in those clinical trials to say, oh, we found something we didn't see. So, so you know, I was involved in a vaccine trial with 80,000 people in, a, in one of the businesses I did. And that's not, now we're getting real life clinical data from the vaccines, for example, in millions. Emergency use is slightly different. So one year, uh, I have to tell you, uh, for, your, for your people listening, it's a medical miracle. Honestly, I was in vaccine development for many years. I worked for a vaccine company. So it is a testament to the collaboration of science that we have vaccines but it's not typical of the drug development process. What will be interesting to see is if some of the things that have happened here will be translated post-pandemic into the process of approval. Once a drug is approved, what happens next? Okay, so uh, it depends where you are. So if we're talking about Canada, it then goes through another set of reviews to determine what price it's going to be. Because we have some regulated pricing here and actually the government's got some legislation out about that. It's put on hold for now, but but it's talking with them about how we how do we determine what price it is, who gets it. And so in Canada, there's a, I would say, a multi-level process where we have a common drug review, and then we have to get on what we call the formulary before you can sell it. So in order to get it proved, Health Canada has to do a full study on your drug. They'll this is thousands of pages of documents that they are going to look at. And they're also going to go see where you manufacture it. They're going to see that you meet all the regulations and that will be an ongoing situation where they may come again every year, every second year, depends on the risk. So toothpaste, which is a drug in Canada because of the amount of calcium and fluoride in it, obviously doesn't get as many inspections as a vaccine company. So it just depends because we don't inject it into ourselves, et cetera. So, so that depends how many things, but it, you know, in order for them to do that approval process, it, it's a lot of work for Health Canada to look at those things. Everywhere you want to get approved, you need to go to that jurisdiction and get it approved. So now the difference there slightly is if you're in Europe, of course, you're covered by the European Union, then that's multi-country. And the other thing which I didn't mention is also what's tied up in this is patenting. So early on in the process of drug discovery, somebody, whether it's the academic or later in the process, will have put together a patent application to protect them so that when it does get to market, they have some level of exclusivity. The study most people quote in, which was a 2014 study, is that it's about $2 billion per drug to get it to market. Drug discovery and development don't only happen in industry. It's also a huge part of research in academic institutions. We asked Dr. Symington about the differences between academia and industry when it comes to drug discovery. Industry's gone over a change in the last few years. When I was in industry, we had a full research lab that was dedicated to discovery. Many of the big pharmaceutical companies don't do that as much anymore. And what they do is they work with academics or they do technology scouting and look at academics and they do it that way. So that's one way that happens. And then the drug is licensed often by the university at a very early stage. And then a pharmaceutical company, group of pharmaceutical companies may take that over. 
take that license. So royalty goes back to the university and then they develop it into a drug. So that's one way of happening. And a lot of pharmaceutical companies are doing that. Academics have spun out labs, spun out companies themselves, have developed drugs themselves. They sell their company or drug, et cetera, because when you get past phase one of clinical trials, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars here. And it's very hard to raise that kind of money for a small company. So they'll either connect with a large pharma company or they'll just sell the rights to that drug. That is why you see most of the large drugs coming out of big companies. And you also hear in the, in the newspaper about multi-million dollar mergers or, or buyouts. Um, it's because the process is so expensive. So it's one thing to have a molecule. It's another thing to get the molecule into the body and get it to the right place and get the right formulation and also do it under the correct, what we call good manufacturing practices. And so that's the other issue that pharma has access to all of that information and academics usually do not have access to the facilities or the money. So drug discovery does happen in pharma and it does happen in academics. It's really the drug development process post-discovery that changes. And the other thing is that a lot of pharma now are very interested in open innovation. So a lot of them are doing what we call pre-commercialization where they go together. So I can think of a couple of examples. The Structural Genomics Consortium at U of T is one example where there are lots of companies there in a pre-commercialization setting, all working with the Structural Genome Consortium to understand mechanisms of disease, understand targets, which are freely published to the world, no IP. And then they can take that information, anybody can take that information and then use that to develop a drug development process. You know, it used to be there was one or two ways of doing this. Now there's many, many ways to, to get between, hey, I've got a gene of interest or a target of interest, and here I've got a drug. What role does the pharmaceutical industry play in Canadian healthcare? Pharmaceutical companies, whether they be large pharmaceutical companies, small ones, or pre-commercialized companies being spun out of universities, etc. That's where new drugs come from. That's where innovation is. The collaboration across academic institutions in the life science with pharmaceutical companies really is astounding. Canada has a very, very vibrant life science academic community. U of T, McGill, Vancouver, and, and everywhere in between, you know, honestly, depending on what the specific issue is. And we have pharmaceutical companies here. We have small biotechs, but we have less of large pharmaceutical companies doing their manufacturing here. We need to continue to attract them to do clinical trials in Canada. Canada is a very attractive place to do clinical trials because of our multicultural groups. But we need to continue to encourage them to do it here because if they do clinical trials here, then our patients have access to first-line therapies. We need to continue to work with the government about streamlining regulations and not getting rid of regulations. So I taught regulatory affairs a long time, so I'm not advocating getting them, but streamlining them appropriately so that things don't get tied up for so long that patients are waiting. And then we need to have a fair and equitable way of assigning what the price of a drug should be so that they are available to everybody, that the pharmaceutical companies are managing, you know, because I said 2.4 billion. The reason that number is so large is because so many fail. Only about 17% of any drug that enters phase one ever gets to phase three. We have a lot of failures. 
So they do need to cover that. And people say, yeah, but they got this drug and that blockbuster. That's true. And especially true of some of the bigger ones. But but it's still a huge enterprise, right, to, to be able to do this. So there needs to be a fair and equitable price where Canadians are getting the best drugs. It has to be a coordinated approach by government, by pharma, foundations, the patients. And I would say one of the things that pharma's done, and I would say the government started to do as well, is patients have become the central voice. So we've really moved since I've been in pharma. Now I was in vaccine development, so it's a little different, but where we call it, talk all talk about patient-centered care and pharma talks about patient-centered care. And so that that's good. They have more of a voice so we can really understand. It's very complex getting a drug on the market and getting to the right people. We just heard about the long process of drug discovery, and it's clearly really complicated. It can also be difficult to understand why people should care about the long process of drug development, like discovering a target molecule, filing a patent, and raising the capital for clinical trials. But for some, the success of this process can literally be the difference between life and death. To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Durhain Wong-Rieger, the president and CEO of the Canadian Organization for Rare Disorders, or CORD. Hi, Dr. Wong-Rieger. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. So to start, what is the definition of a rare disease? And if these diseases are so rare, why should the vast majority of Canadians care about rare diseases? I'm sure you all know people with rare diseases. You may just not think about it right away because there are some 7,000 rare diseases. So even though each one of them is actually affects only a few people collectively, we think in Canada about one in 12 persons actually has a rare disease. And to be honest, more people are living with rare disease than with cancer, more than with cardiovascular disease, more than are diagnosed with diabetes. It's not pre-diabetes, but diabetes. So collectively, rare diseases is a huge patient population and obviously a huge healthcare public health issue is just that because the numbers for the individual diseases are so small, you may not actually know them. But you will know some of the major rare diseases. You know cystic fibrosis. You'll probably know, you know, muscular dystrophy. You'll know hemophilia. You'll know sickle cell disease, even though it is very populous in uh, certain areas of the world, northern Africa, southern Italy, etc. It's actually a rare disease when you think about it globally. But then there are so many, many really rare diseases. So we deal, for instance, in the news a lot today is spinal muscular atrophy, you know, a progressive neuromuscular disease that affects, you know, very few people, one in maybe 30,000. There's some diseases that we deal with that will affect maybe as few as one in 100,000, one in 60,000. So in Canada, we may have 300 to 500 people with these conditions. So rare diseases are actually not rare at all. They're not rare at all is an important word. And I say, if you talk with people, you would probably know people that have rare diseases. They may or may not be talking about it. They may or may not still be living. Many of our listeners have probably heard that medications used to treat rare diseases are categorized as orphan drugs. What does this label mean? And why are medications that treat rare diseases given this distinct categorization, unlike all other drugs that we have? There was a huge imperative to try to develop treatments for rare diseases because many of these therapies were not actually deemed to be cost-effective. Companies would actually sometimes be developing a drug and then they would not continue with it because they recognized that even if it were to work, they would never get their money back. The numbers of people were too small. And so they would orphan the drug, put it on a shelf, and not actually pursue it. The Orphan Drug Act is the major act in the U.S. that actually has stimulated the research and development in rare disease treatment because it provides incentives for researchers and for drug manufacturers to actually pursue them. Gives longer terms in terms of patent protection, gives exclusivity, but also gives financial support for doing the research itself. 
prior to the Orphan Drug Act, it's a true story. There was a mother. She had two kids who had the Tourette syndrome and her kids were on this clinical trial. And the company that was doing the clinical trial was doing it for a major disease group. But they felt, oh my gosh, this small disease group, you know, might also benefit from it because it has some similarities. They recognized the trial was not working well with the major disease group. They said, we're going to pull the drug. The mother says, are you kidding me? My kids are on it. It's actually working for them. What do you mean? You know, there's nothing else they can take. And the company says, sorry, we we'll, can't develop it because it's never going to be cost effective. So they stopped it. She set up a huge protest. At the end of the day, the mom, you know, was able to persevere, getting all kinds of support, going into the Congress, getting the support of senators and representatives to pass the Orphan Drug Act that basically said, if you will develop these drugs, we will provide these incentives for you. The decade prior to the Orphan Drug Act in the 80s, there were 10 new drugs over the entire decade. Since that time, there have been almost 700 or maybe even more than 700 drugs for rare diseases that have been developed. The EU passed similar legislation. Japanese have been doing some stuff. The Koreans have been you know, developing it. So other countries came into it as well. Canada sadly said, we'll take a pass on it. We don't really want to get involved in developing drugs for rare diseases. Other countries can do it. We'll just buy them. And they actually literally said that. We'll just purchase the drugs. That's amazing, considering the amount of medical innovation that usually happens in Canada. Well, yes and no. Think about what we're doing with vaccines right now. Think about antibiotics or treatments for COVID-19. We're playing catch up. It's sort of, unfortunately, a little bit of like, you know, other people can do it. We'll dabble on the edges maybe. But for us to make a big concerted effort, I don't think so. So unfortunately, this has been a little bit of where hand is. There's amazing research that takes place in the laboratories, in the universities, but to develop it to the next stage where it actually becomes a treatment, that's where we fall apart. We don't do the investment. We will not kind of push it in order to make it into an actual viable product. So where does Canada stand in terms of medical innovation? Canada's risk aversive. We're a very cautious country. We like things to kind of work, right? And I think that's the challenge. Many of these drugs are high, high risk. Even the first drug I was telling you about, the woman her kids were on, the drug never panned out. So for every drug that actually does work, as you know, there are hundreds that do not. And even with this drug, once they were going into clinical trials, it would have taken an investment from some kind of a, you know, financial group, but they would be taking a chance, right? And without the government backing it up to some degree, there isn't the kind of security. So both in the sense of being highly innovative and also being willing to tolerate risk, it makes it very challenging to go into these kinds of treatments because they are, in fact, high risk in terms of how, you know, how likely they are to work. We do really well as we work well internationally. There's a consortium called the International Rare Disease Research Consortium, which I actually belong to as part of a, the head of the patient's constituency there. So we do a lot in terms of being part of international projects. And in fact, we heard huge expression over and over again. Canada punches way above its weight in these international ones because we have expertise. We have really smart people. We have great training in there. We have great facilities. So when we get into an environment where there's the other kinds of supports, including investments, we do amazingly well. We have a lot of respect internationally in terms of what Canada brings to it. It's clear that improving the process of drug development and discovery in Canada is important in creating novel therapies for those living with debilitating rare diseases. But another factor that determines whether those living with rare diseases can access treatment is drug pricing. Medications that treat rare diseases can be extremely expensive. In Canada, the prices for treatments for rare diseases can range from $100,000 to $2 million per year and they're sometimes required for the person's entire lifespan. In 2019, more than half of all of the high-cost drugs for rare diseases available in Canada 
costed more than $200,000 per patient per year. In Canada, these expensive medications for rare diseases can be paid for in numerous ways. Sometimes, they're covered by public drug programs paid for by the government. Other times, these drugs are paid for by private drug plans typically provided through one's employer. There's also some special access programs. But in many cases, patients and families are left to cover these expenses out of pocket. The reasons for these high prices are complicated. The inherent rarity of a rare disease means that there are very few people living with it. This means that there's often a very small market for rare disease medications. Also, as we previously heard, the process of discovering and subsequently bringing a new medication to market is a really expensive one. To learn more about the challenges of drug pricing, we spoke to Dr. Joel Lection. So I graduated from medical school in 1977 at the University of Toronto. And since 1982, I've been an emergency physician initially in Hamilton, and then since 1988 at University Health Network. In addition to that, from 2001 to 2016, I taught health policy at York University, where I then I retired from that, so I'm now considered a professor emeritus. And I have an appointment at the University of Toronto because I work in a teaching hospital and I'm an associate professor in family and community medicine there. I've been looking at this area for 40 years now, roughly, maybe a little bit longer. And I do a pretty wide range of research. So I look at the evidence behind drug approvals, I look at how Health Canada evaluates that evidence and communicates it. I look at post-market safety. In other words, do drugs run into problems after they've been on the market? Do they have to be taken off the market because of drug safety? Are post-market safety problems a reflection sometimes of how quickly drugs have been approved by Health Canada? Pretty wide range of issues. We asked Dr. Lection about whether the price of orphan drugs really reflects their therapeutic value and accurately accounts for the costs associated with research and development. When we're looking at orphan drugs, and clearly there is a need for drugs for a lot of conditions that small numbers of people have, but when we're looking at that, we really need to think, rethink the whole idea of how do we stimulate R&D into these areas, and how do we pay for these drugs? And should we be paying what the drug companies are asking for, or should we be paying what the drugs are actually worth? So uh, one example of that is there's a new, pretty good drug for cystic fibrosis. In the United States, this drug is running at a little more than $300,000 a year per person. There's an independent organization based on the East Coast that does health technology assessment. They've looked at this drug. They've looked at the benefits based on the trials that have been done. They've looked at the price and they said, this drug was cost effective if you drop the price by 75%. So what they're saying is the drug companies are asking for three to four times what the drug is worth in terms of the benefits that it gives. And I think that we need to be doing that with 
orphan drugs too. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be paying for them. And that doesn't mean that if they're really expensive, but really worth it, that we shouldn't be paying that kind of money. But it does mean that we need a much deeper analysis of what's going on with orphan drugs than what we currently have, which is the drug companies and some patient groups saying, we need this money, the drugs are worth it, you need to pay for the drugs, and if you don't pay for the drugs, then people's lives are going to be your responsibility. As we just heard, determining drug prices is a difficult process. In fact, the way drug prices are determined in Canada is currently up in the air. In Canada, the prices of medications are reviewed by the Patented Medicine Prices Review Board, or the PMPRB. As of July 1st of this year, the PMPRB is undergoing major reforms that will drastically change how we determine drug prices in Canada. To learn more about the function of the PMPRB and the proposed changes, we spoke to Dr. Nigel Rawson. Dr. Rawson is a pharmacoepidemiologist, pharmaceutical policy researcher, and senior fellow with the Fraser Institute. The PMPRB, it's easier to use an acronym, sets the ceiling prices for medicines and has done that since the late 1980s, so 30 years. It's worked reasonably well. There are some views that it's not worked as well as it could have done or kept the prices down as tight as it could have done. And particularly the current government feels that. So they've introduced or will be introduced or They've originally proposed some changes. The first change in that is that they're going to change the international comparison that the PMPRB uses to assess uh, prices. So it compares the potential price in Canada with prices in a batch of other countries. Currently, there are seven. They include the United States and Switzerland, which are obviously higher priced countries. So that tends to move up the median price. The plan is to remove the United States and Switzerland and introduce a number of other lower priced countries. So the first step is the assessment of international countries, and that'll push the prices down. It's expected around 20%. On top of that, the government proposed looking at using some pharmacoeconomic tests and some tests on the market size and sales and so forth that will continue to push the price down if they reach certain thresholds. One of the reasons for the PMPRB changes is to, to reduce prices, to enable us to move, in my opinion, uh, towards national pharmacare of a size that we can afford. And that national pharmacare may include a basic national formulary. As I said, the council recommends we start with that. One of the risks is that we start with that and never expand it to the larger long-run type of formulary that the advisory council talked about because cost. What could these changes mean for Canada? Are there other countries that have adopted a similar strategy? New Zealand has, for I think now 25 years, had a system to control prices has a fixed budget for paying for medications per year. And this has made New Zealand itself uh, particularly unattractive to brand name pharmaceutical companies. So it tends to have products launched, at least submitted for approval there, much later than in several other countries, particularly Canada. And even if they are approved, they're not always available for various reasons. So it, this seemed to, you know, that Canada has the potential for moving, if you like, down the scale uh, for attractiveness, heading towards the New Zealand situation. And their access is, is generally poorer than in this country. So they have less oncology drugs and cardiovascular medications. Now, whether you can say it's associated or not is, is another matter. 
And there are surveys of senior pharmaceutical executives that indicate that they're very concerned about this situation and they're thinking about delaying uh, bringing drugs here. In some cases, they're thinking of not bringing drugs to Canada because it's just simply not worthwhile. The price, the potential price reduction would just make it unsustainable. Uh, I mean, if your product is suddenly, somebody says, well, you need to reduce your product by 95%, your reaction is, well, is it really worth it? We asked Dr. Wong Rieger about her thoughts on the reforms. The rare disease community have been very much advocating against the reforms that are being brought in. And it really does trouble us, both the way in which they're being brought in and what's actually in them. I mean, frankly, the Patent Medicine Charge Review Board has a very important task, and that is to make sure that Canada doesn't get charged excess prices, that we're not paying more than others. That being said, it does not mean that we get to pay the lowest in the world. And I think that's what's happening is that because there's such this level of distrust between the PMPRB and the industry, which they're supposed to be able to monitor and they find themselves unable to monitor, they've now brought in what I call very draconian policies to try to really clamp down on it. They say, you haven't been participating in this. We've given you these sets of rules and guidelines. You've ignored them or you've, you know, kind of um, been able to get around them. So we're now going to bring in some really heavy, heavy hands. The challenge, again, was that it was going to, if they applied it the way that they want to, and which is what's still on the table, it would actually push Canada to very low I mean, you know, we are right now, you know, somewhere in the middle of the uh, OECD countries. It would bring us closer to the bottom of it. And what happens is that if you're a manufacturer, you're not going to want to come into a country very early on if the price you're going to get is a low price. There's two parts to it. One is a reference pricing. Many countries have reference pricing. It basically says, look, we want to pay what other countries are paying. In the absence of knowing what is the right price for a drug, we will agree that the right price is what other people are paying. So let's not pay more than that. And that was sort of the big tool for the PMPRB, non-excessive pricing. And what they did, we thought was quite right. They threw out the US and they threw out Switzerland because they say your prices are really high. And we're going to go with the other countries that we think will bring a better balance to it. Okay, so if we applied those rules, it would put us probably a little bit below what the median is, which is, okay, if that's where you want to be, it's kind of like a not a bad place to be. Remember, though, these are list prices. These are not the actual negotiated price. And unfortunately, and I say this really, you know, the pharmaceutical pricing works sort of like a used car market. You go in there and you negotiate, you know, and you try to bargain. Nobody trusts the other person, right? And I think this is terrible. So this is the way it's being done. It's being done globally. I mean, it's the worst possible way you can think of in terms of actually bringing drugs to patients. But that's the way it works. And the negotiated price is actually a confidential price. So quite frankly, we have no idea how we actually sit in actual paid prices relative to other countries. Because the way in which I negotiate with you is you agree that those prices will be held confidential. Because if we know other countries are referencing it, they will want the same prices. I mean, again, it's like the worst kind of a used car market. Honestly, you know, we applied those same rules to actually getting major innovative therapies that are life-saving for patients. And I mean, no wonder the system doesn't work. So this has been the case. Now, in most countries, we negotiate those prices. In every other country, we negotiate those prices with the negotiator. You go into the used car lot and you negotiate, right? What Canada has decided to do is say, no, 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 we are not going to let you do that. We're going to set the prices back at the headquarters. We're going to guess what that negotiated price is going to be. And we're going to tell you that you cannot charge any more than what would be your negotiated price. And what's happened is that the drug industry has said, well, we can't do that. Usually those prices are confidential. Now you're telling us that you're going to set them for us. And quite frankly, you're going to set them using rules that are not transparent. 
And no, you do not get to challenge it back. There is no negotiation on it. And what they have proposed and the rules that we think they're applying based on what they've said are going to put us, especially rare disease drugs, in a hugely challenging spot. The trouble with rare disease drugs is that the data I have are based on very small clinical trials for very short periods of time. And in many cases, we've got no past history in terms of how well they might work, right? So we know that for many of the cardiovascular diseases, diabetes and everything else, we've got long histories of these. And we're comparing them to drugs that have been around for a long time, how much better do they work? In many cases, these are also the first drug that's ever been for this patient population. And so I'm going to guess to you that it's going to work for 20 years. Well, guess what? None of my patients have actually ever lived to 20 years. I'm thinking it's going to work for 20 years, but I have no evidence. So what happens is the value assessment starts to discount how much I'm actually going to give to it because it's uncertain. You're telling me this is the value returned to me after 20 years. I'm telling you, you're giving me data that's based on 12 months of, of research. I have no confidence in it, so I'm going to discount it. So this is, again, what PMPRB does. It says, okay, we'll discount the value of it. So what could have been, let's say it was worth like 20000 I'm going to say in order for me to actually have any kind of a pricing there, I'm going to say that it's really one-tenth of that, one-one-hundredth of that. And that's what happens. We need to have people who aren't perceived to have a conflict of interest. We need people like you guys to say, look, you know, we can be somewhat of that neutral arbiter there. Let us take some roles in terms of being able to help bring parties together and to look at the balance, right? Because there needs to be a balance. We also talked to Dr. Lection about the proposed changes. I've been following this issue pretty closely. So we need to go back again in time a bit. So a very quick summary is that the way we currently regulate drug prices was established in the late 80s. And what the aim was, was to increase the amount of research being done in Canada. And so the idea was, okay, let's pick countries that do the amount of research that we would like done in Canada. We'll price our drugs sort of in the middle of what these countries price their drugs at, and that will encourage the drug companies to do more R&D here. And that actually worked for about the first 10 years, and then it stopped working. And now, as a percentage of overall sales, the amount of R&D that's done in Canada is lower than it was in 1988. It's about 4.5% of sales. So that didn't work. But what it did was it left us with about the fourth highest drug prices in the world. Some of the countries that we chose to compare ourselves to were countries with very high drug prices. So primarily Switzerland and the United States. The United States is a major outlier when it comes to drug prices. So we didn't get the R&D in the long term that we wanted, but we certainly got high drug prices. And so now the aim of these changes to the Patented Medicine Prices Review Board is to reduce Canadian drug prices to about the average of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. That's a grouping of, I think it's the 40 richest countries in the world. And we're aim right now, we're almost at the top of that, we'd like to be in the middle. And that's basically what the aim of these changes are. So drop Canadian drug prices, 
so that we're at the same level roughly as Australia or Norway or Denmark, countries where there's same economic status as Canada, roughly the same type of medical practice, and we'd like to be paying about the same amount for our drugs. How will these changes affect drug prices and access to medications in Canada? The people who support the changes say that they'll drop drug prices by 25, 30%. The people who oppose the changes, primarily the drug companies, but also patient groups that receive funding from drug companies and some of the right-wing think tanks like the Fraser Institute are saying that the price cuts are gonna be much more dramatic. There's been a lot of argument that if we drop the drug prices, companies are not going to be interested in introducing new drugs into Canada. As I said at the start, I've been looking at this issue for 40-something years. And way back in the early 1970s, when the NDP government in Manitoba set up a formulary, the government started paying for drugs and said, if there are generics available, we're only going to pay for the generics. The predecessor for Innovative Medicines Canada said, well, if Manitoba does that, we're going to have to think about whether or not we're going to invest in Manitoba and maybe we won't market our drugs there. So this kind of argument that if Canada does something about drug prices, um, the drug companies are not going to introduce their products is largely a red herring. If they're going to make money, they're still going to introduce their drugs and there's no indication that they're not going to make money. You know, prices in Denmark are a quarter, roughly, of what they are, or a third of what they are in Canada, and drugs are still being introduced in Denmark. And even more to the point, most of the drugs that are introduced, new drugs that are introduced in any given year in Canada or anywhere else, and this is based on independent assessment of their therapeutic value. There's only about one in 10 new drugs that have a major therapeutic advance over already existing medications. So the argument that drug companies are going to withhold drugs and you're going to start to see bodies lying in the street because people couldn't get the medications that they needed, again, is largely a red herring. Let me just give you one other example. In Australia, there are something like 230,000 people with hepatitis C. And the Australian government wanted to be able to offer treatment for all of these people. But at the price that the companies were charging for their hepatitis C drugs, that was about, I think, $50,000 per person for the course of treatment. The Australian government just couldn't afford the amount of money. You can multiply 50000 by 230000 and it comes out to some enormous amount of money. You know. So what the Australian government did was they went to the drug companies and said, okay, we will guarantee you a market. We will guarantee you a market of 230,000 people. And in return, you have to drop your prices. So the drug companies dropped their prices down to, I believe it's about $7,500 per person. So the prices dropped down to one-sixth. 
The drug companies were happy because they had a huge market and the Australian government was happy because they could then treat everybody and the patients were happy because they got cured. So I think that when we're looking at drug prices, we need to get, rather than have fights with patient groups, we need to make allies of these groups and together the government, the doctors, the patient groups sit down with the drug companies and say, okay, these are the conditions under which we can fund your drug in terms of how much money we'll pay for it. But, you know, if the drug doesn't show benefits that it looks like it should, then we might have to stop or you might have to pay or you might have to take a lower price. And we think that there are X number of people who are going to take this drug per year. But if it turns out that there are two times that many people, then you're going to have to take a lower price for the drug. When you say things like withholding drugs, what does that actually mean? What does that look like in real life? There are various arguments that are being made by the industry and its allies. So one of them is that the drugs just won't be introduced in the first place. And the second is that they're going to delay the introduction of them, that you can make more money by drug companies, although huge, still have limited resources. So you can make more money by introducing your drug in Germany than you can in Canada. So you're going to introduce it first in Germany, and then you'll put the resources into introducing it in Canada. So Canada gets it six months or a year later than Germany. So those are some of the arguments that are being made by the drug companies either not introducing them at all or introducing them later into Canada. And that revolves around how much money they're going to get for their drug, which essentially puts, I regard that as a form of extortion. Either you give us what we want or we're going to punish you. But what's never addressed, at least from the drug company side, is why are these drugs costing so much in the first place? So... Why does Zolgesma, which is a drug for spinal muscular atrophy, cost, in American terms, $2.1 million? Now, it's a one-shot drug, but $2.1 million is a lot of money. So what's, what's behind that price? Show us how much money you spent on research. The drug companies don't want to do that. In fact, they don't do that. And you don't have to do this in public. You can do this to the people who are going to be paying for the drug. So the in Ontario would be the um, Ontario Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. Show us the money. Show us your books. Prove to us that it really, that this price is justified. But the drug companies don't want to do that. And in fact, they've never done it anywhere not just in Canada, but in any other country. So that's the first thing. The second point is that drugs for rare diseases started off, um, this issue came to the fore in the United States in the early 1980s. And at that point in time, the argument was that the population for these drugs was so small that commercially the drug companies were never going to do anything to develop these drugs just because they couldn't make any money. So they set up a whole series of incentives for the drug companies to do it. But fast forward 
30 years or a little more than 30 years, look at the um, top 10 selling drugs in the United States. Seven out of those 10 drugs have an orphan drug indication. That says to me that it's really not logical anymore to argue that you need all these incentives to do the research because you're still making lots of money from these drugs. The PMPRB changes are controversial. It's difficult to create an environment where pharmaceutical companies are incentivized to create medications while tightly regulating drug prices to keep them affordable. One thing is clear. Canada would benefit if more drugs were developed here at home. We should get better at converting the academic discoveries made in our world-class institutions into new medicines and therapies that are actually brought to market here in Canada first. So, to all you grad students out there, we know you're the real heroes. We don't have to build the rocket ship. We don't have to send the people to the moon. We can actually contribute, though, in ways that are on a smaller scale that are niche to what we do, right? So I think that's what we could do and we should do, but it still takes investment. It still takes, you know, the government to say, this is an important area. And what we recognize is that rare diseases, investment in rare diseases doesn't just benefit rare diseases. Many of the therapies that we have for rare diseases actually go into more common conditions. And that's the exciting thing. You know statins? That was actually developed initially for a rare condition. This is like the most common kind of a drug that's hanging around all over the place, right? It was originally developed for a condition that was um, a very high blood pressure. And for these rare disease patients who had this condition, you know, they would actually suffer uh, almost fatal blockages. And uh, it was found that, you know, this drug would actually be able to treat any of these patients. And then also we realized, of course, there were a lot of people that had high blood pressure, similar diseases, you know, conditions, and this drug works amazingly well. Canada, you know, if it doesn't want to get into the total novel innovative space, could actually look at where the molecules, where else might they do. We do a great job of genomic sequencing. We have a tremendous facilities. I mean, again, you know, uh, sick kids and Ottawa, Montreal, all of these have amazing facilities and great researchers. We covered a lot today. We took you from the bench side into clinical trial financing, to patient advocacy, to pharmaceutical policy analysis. And in some ways, we're left with more questions than answers. How should we restructure our research system to incentivize discovery and knowledge translation in our Canadian labs? How do we ensure that rare diseases aren't left out of the drug discovery pipeline? How do we create drug pricing structures that simultaneously allows for innovation, but also keeps new medications at accessible prices? These are difficult questions, but we hope that our interviews could provide insight into some of them. In the meantime, major changes are on the way with the new PMPRB drug pricing reforms. If this episode was intriguing to you, keep an eye out for discussions on pharmacare and accessible drug prices in the future. A very special thanks to our guests, Dr. Allison Symington, Dr. Nigel Rawson, Dr. Durhain Wong-Rieger, and Dr. Joe Lection for speaking with us and sharing their insights. And of course, thank you for listening. To learn more about their work, check out the links in our show notes. This episode was hosted by myself, Seth Kibble, and Stephanie Tran. Kiko Miyata helped conduct the interviews, and Adrita DeSauzo is our content creator. Jesse Knight was our executive producer, and Esther Silk was our audio engineer. Tune in next week for episode 93 on the topic of antibiotic resistance. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. 
support this show by using the affiliate link in our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and rate us five stars. Until next time.